1: Hello, and welcome back to New Books and Music. I'm your host, Christopher Riggs. Today, we'll be talking to Thomas Bay William Bailey about his new book, Unofficial Release, Self-Released and Handmade Audio in Post-Industrial Society. Thank you, Thomas, for joining me today. Yeah, my pleasure. Uh, I'd like to start, before we start talking about your book, if you could give us a little bit of a background on who you are and uh, kind of how you came to write this book.
0: I guess around 2000, I graduated from Columbia College Chicago with a degree in uh, just you know creative writing and journalism, and mm-hmm. shortly thereafter uh, moved over to Japan, where uh, you know despite having kind of a non career in music and uh, you know just dabblings in writing before that, that's I think when things really started to kick off for me. And, uh, you know, the campaign of making myself interesting really began in earnest. And, Mm. um, went over there, yeah, did some pieces for magazines like the wire and just local, um, you know, sort of bilingual magazines intended to orient people to culture locally while, um, working as a, sort of translator and proofreader on one hand and a ESL instructor on the other. And um, uh, having sort of integrated into the subculture over there, I think, really accelerated my interest in, um, you know, I guess intermedia, you could call it, or, you know, art forms that... Um You know, not to be confused with multimedia where you know the focus is simply on on having two or three forms and combining them, but you know things that that perhaps fall between uh the cracks of other fields of of human inquiry you know and right. uh you know maybe cannot necessarily be called a art or science or anything as concrete as that and um so anyway, you know, sort of focused my research in that direction you know originally um you know, localized within Japan, but then further on, uh, broadening my contact base to other countries and, Mm. and so on. And, you know, at the same time I was, uh, making music of my own, I guess you could call it kind of, you know, psychoacoustic music or, uh, something like that, or, or an electronic music that's not necessarily either. Um, Academic, you know, just because it's it's not really done with the blessing of any particular institution, right? Or uh, <laughs> although I don't know, it it could be if I worked hard enough at it. It's just right. Yeah, you know, that's a, a weak point of mine. Is making case for myself. <laughs> um, so yeah, not necessarily that, and not, again, you know, not necessarily uh, uh, you know dance music or more uh, you know popular electronic forms, right? Right. And um, you know, in in doing so, again, sort of ended up in this very tightly knit, but, um, you know, very diverse circle of people who, uh, you know, work in that medium. Um, and, you know, things just grew and grew over the years until, uh, you know, I had a sort of restless period of traveling, which, you know, took me to central Europe and to Scandinavia and, uh, most recently to spain in 2011 where i was a researcher in residence over there i was invited by uh, francisco lopez the oh right. Uh, right sound artist um and bioacoustic researcher to be the first i guess researcher in residence at the facility that he headed up there in the town called marcia mm. uh, which is called som uh, i forget what Right. That's what that stands for. for, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. In Spanish, but S O N M dot E S is the, you know, the website that they maintain for that. Um, so anyway, um, you know, I've, I guess sort of been both a practitioner and a, you know, just, just critic or documenter of the same kind of things. Um, you know that being uh you know technology that may not be necessarily used in a utilitarian kind of way you know yeah. um you know that's that's kind of a common thread with a lot of the uh in particular electronic music that I've worked with uh you know be that uh you know so-called glitch uh music or um You know, again, another kind of unfortunately named genre, but noise or (laughs) (laughs) what's called Onkyo or New Berlin Minimalism or this kind of stuff. So, Mm. um, you know, I'm fascinated by, uh, you know, people using very cutting edge technology to do things that are not necessarily um, aimed at, you know, I I guess for lack of a better word, advancement, you know, right. things that are kind of you know either atavistic in nature or um you know simply not not done for the sake of perpetuating more technology i guess right right um so that's yeah that's one definite focus of interest for me and the other which we're probably going to be talking about is um just alternative means of distribution for artwork like uh you know male art or networked art um you know, things like that I I'm sorry did you have a question or?
1: oh that, that, that seems like a, a perfect transition to yeah. uh, specifically talk about your book and I sure I, you and you do insert yourself as a as a practitioner uh, you know <laughs> towards, uh, certainly at the very
0: beginning and then at the yeah. end uh, oh yeah and I' mean to a, a much lesser degree than a lot of the other people yeah oh, okay. there because <laughs> I, I may still have a bit of a perfectionist impulse to shake off and, and um, you know a lot of the people who are profiled in there, you know, it's not unusual at all for them to be doing something like 20 releases in a year and, um, having it be almost like a magazine subscription sort of thing, really. Um, but yeah, um, there, there is a brief, I guess, sort of comical moment there in the beginning of the book where I'm, uh, outlining my, um, early efforts as a, child i guess in in suburban chicago there right right yeah coming
1: Uh, (laughs) coming through punk rock and uh and various other subcultures uh well i'm I'm curious if you could talk a bit about Mm -hmm. uh the history of mail art and how that Mm -hmm. uh leads into uh cassette tape culture it seems like a a a good starting point
0: yeah there. are um were not actually as many uh, people who directly transitioned from that one culture to the other, you know. Right. Um, in the beginning, I, I, I thought there were, but uh, there was one person in particular I could probably point to, which was uh, Rod Summers, who is sort of like a sound poet now in uh, Maastricht in the Netherlands, who um, started, I believe, kind of on the cusp of the the 80s uh there was a project he started called the vec audio exchange um which you know is probably as good an exemplar of the crossover as we're likely to get where um you know he had previously been working with um correspondence artists and decided to um you know just that the logical transition would be to you know put some of the things that they were doing on uh audio, and he was actually quite adamant early on that, you know, this this project would not involve any kind of music. So, you know, it was really a, a sound by artists sort of proposition rather than a, um, uh, you know, what we call it, a, a musical one, although there was more of that as, as time wore on. Um, but anyway, um yeah you know, obviously the the history of mail art goes back much much further than that. I mean there's exemplars of that as early as the early 20th century when you had the uh, Italian futurists were uh you know sending metal postcards as artworks and um things of that nature and uh probably the one person that everybody points to even though it's difficult to really have a single originator of something like this, where um, you know, essentially everybody is refusing to be called that. You know, <laughs> right? Right. <laughs> Nobody actually wants to accept this honor because it seems you know so profoundly arrogant in the the context of the work. Um, it's a guy by the name of Ray Johnson, who um, had the uh, sort of a what was called a correspondence school in New York in the sixties. Uh, which was deliberately misspelled. It was like "correspond <laughs> <Yeah>, D-A-N-C-E, <laughs> you know, which, again, was implying that there was this kind of, uh, you know, a, a drama around the um, transitional act of corresponding itself rather than uh, the final results, which was the interesting thing. And, um, you know, very much everybody I've, I've interviewed from that culture says something to that effect, like um, there's another... Uh, gentleman by the name of Andre um, a uh, Serbian artist who, you know, refers to his work as uh, what he calls social sculpture. Where again, just the the act of uh, sending out various artifacts and um, getting reactions from them, and and seeing what that leads to next is is more important than those artifacts themselves. You know, mm-hmm. they're just this this sort of propositional phase towards um you know generating a response that you know is not necessarily directed or or planned in advance um
1: your your comment about uh the uh, uh the male artists that, that none of them wanted to kind of accept this honor of being the originator that's that Mm-hmm. Uh, it's. It, it, I'm, I'm reminded of the interview with with Al Margolis, where uh, mm-hmm. he's he's kind of dubbed this uh, d- dubbed <laughs> d- dubbed the grandfather of of, of uh, cassette tapes. Is that what the the name that was given him in the uh, the yeah. uh, the conflict? Yeah, the I, believe, I can't even remember who. Right, who right. Called <laughs> it, but yeah. But then there ended up being a conflict with this uh, with this group that because you had you had asked him. Uh, uh, you know whether or not he had any any trouble with anyone that he was releasing, and he he didn't really mm-hmm. uh, say that this was much of a much of a conflict, but that was the closest thing to a conflict with something that was mm-hmm. uh, related to this idea yeah. of of someone being
0: crowned. <laughs> yeah, and even then, who knows? I mean, that that may have been just in good fun, right? To you know, right. goad him into right uh, <laughs> doing something interesting rather than to provoke a uh, little, you know back and forth TIF via, you know, whatever zine they were communicating through at the time. Right, right. But um, anyway, yeah, I mean, to to answer the question you had earlier about how people uh, transitioned from, you know, for example, doing Xerography, you know, Xerox-based artworks and that sort of thing to doing stuff on audio. Um, It's hard to really say other than the fact that... uh, you know it just became democratized when you know high bias cassettes became available kind of in the uh end of the seventies and you know it was just one more thing that could be affordably worked with and right. that uh people seized on and it's it's hard to say there was really a more profound right. <laughs> you know, reason than that <laughs> for for people doing it and again you know again these are people who have never defined themselves as as artists in a single medium generally so you know, it was just another expressive form and um, often a very, you know, convenient one because now you could you could send people, you know, audio letters on cassette and also include a artwork or something as part of the same package. And um, I think, you know, from there we also, you know, sort of get the genesis of the, uh, you know, these, these boutique record labels who specialize in uh, custom packaged recordings, you know, which which now are not just cassettes, but uh, you know, pretty much all the other recording media as well.
1: Right, and uh, going back to what you had uh, mentioned a moment ago about uh, this kind of not not all that profound of a beginning with the uh, uh, you know the availability of the uh, high bias cassette tape. Uh, that, that's mm-hmm. that's sort of a thread that you trace throughout the book. The uh, mm-hmm. uh, how technology um, uh, kind of is involved in this. Uh, this exchange um uh but but rather than get, get too into that i'm curious if you could uh as much as i would like to <laughs> i'm curious if uh-huh. you, you could maybe give our listeners uh uh for especially those uh those who aren't uh well-versed in experimental music or, or maybe have never heard mm-hmm. it before uh kind of a uh a, a brief introduction about what uh you know after after this uh the the, the the, the few transitionary figures who are involved in mail art, who are doing things with cassette tape, with sound, mm-hmm. but are explicitly calling it not music, into the people who, you know, eventually becomes industrial, post-industrial, and noise music, and all these other things. and so maybe if you could uh, uh, quickly or not quickly mm-hmm. <laughs> kind of uh, maybe uh, define
0: define or not define these things or describe them. Okay. Uh, which, which should we start with there? Just, you know, experimental music in general? Sure. Or? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's it's always a tricky one because, um, you know, if we're speaking just in terms of results, you know, even, uh, you know, pretty banal pop music could be experimental. You know, we, we have stuff where we have, you know, these people probably had no idea they were going to generate 20 million fans or something like that on, you know, the strength of some fairly mediocre uh, you know auto-tuned uh, vocal track but right. uh, <laughs> you know. but yeah i mean in a more broad sense um i guess it would be a kind of music that that really invites that you know that um is uh really open to and not at all disappointed by the fact that there may be uh you know unexpected reactions um but i mean as for the lineage of this stuff in particular um it's strange because you know on on a one level it was kind of an outgrowth of uh, punk rock or something like that uh, or um, very similar stuff that happened around the same time that I might call like you know garage electronics you know just um, music very similar to uh, punk rock and you know topical thematic content, but maybe done with, you know, synthesizers and, and something of that nature. Um, so, you know, on one hand, that was an influence, but I think it was that way more so just for the, you know, the access principle that it embodied rather than um, any of the actual sound, you know, and mm. in fact, a couple of people that I talked to did explicitly say you know they would be listening to bands from this period and and sort of listening for what they weren't doing rather than uh (laughs) what they were and that was kind of interesting to me (laughs) um so there was that and then um you know obviously the sort of john cage school of um you know indeterminacy in music of uh you know inserting randomness into a program you know either to generate a composition itself or, um, you know, again, to generate a reaction, something like that. So, um, you know, this, this stuff that largely ended up defining the cassette networks and the stuff that followed it, um, you know, it had uh, academic predecessors or, you know, so-called, uh, you know, serious culture. Right, right. predecessors uh, or parallels. Uh, yeah, <laughs> like, right. uh, you know, Carline Stockhausen or something like that. Um, and, um, again, there's kind of a offshoot of this that's very interested in psychoacoustics uh, or seeing, um, using using sound, I guess, as kind of a observational tool, noting its effects on... Uh, Psychology and physiology more so than using it as entertainment or, or um, like something that's reflective of what may be going on around us. So, um, yeah, it's it's hard to bind all these things together, right. but you know, <laughs> <That's laughs> <and, together. laughs> there is sometimes crossover and sometimes not. But, right. Um, right. Those are you know just some of the things that I notice kind of dominating the conversation around, um, all of this stuff.
1: Right. And I, I, I do kind of appreciate your mentioning of, uh, uh, you know the American experimentalism, John Cage, et cetera. Second, I mean, <laughs> been, as, well, as important as first lot, <laughs> well, You know, but <laughs> as as important as those things are, it's it is nice to have kind of cold water pour, poured on things occasionally. You know?
0: <laughs> so. Yeah, and um, again, you know that that's sort of become its own kind of formalism as well. Right. So you know, there's there's Cage and Cageans, just like anybody else. You know, where there's kind of these these of the original that, you know, may not be advancing, uh, you know, those ideas so much as as I think they are. So yeah, you know, that can be kind of codified as a a school as any other thing can. Right. Right.
1: Well, I I wonder if, uh, since we've started naming names, if we, (laughs) (laughs) if we, uh, if, if you wouldn't mind mentioning a few kind of, uh, uh, we, I, I, curious to hear you talk a little about al, Mar- al margolis and uh, i know yeah. we've, we've mentioned him as the uh cassette uh godfather grandfather i don't know what i said <laughs> but if you if you'd like to talk about him or about uh about anybody else from that from that time one of the kind of the earlier people working with this type of music on cassette in the you know, 1970s 1980s
0: well another one who um should definitely mention who is you know sadly recently deceased is uh conrad schnitzler mm. Who um, I believe it was a student of Joseph Boys, actually. Um, oh, that's right. And you know, obviously, many were because you know Boys had a open door policy where anybody who wished to study under him as a student could be, you know. And um, which was kind of a seen as a insult to the prevailing institutions there at the time. Right. But um, anyway, yeah, um, Schnitzler was involved with them, and as well with. Uh, you know a lot of the uh people from that so called you know kosmish uh music scene you know this this sort of uh stuff like cluster i believe very um you know ambient electronic music and um he used to do uh what were called cassette concerts you know where he would I believe have a belt of cassette players himself you know that would be turned on and on, on and off throughout a performance while also directing a audience who had come to participate in these shows who each you know had access to a cassette recorder and playback device of their own and um you know that was one of the more interesting examples of uh, you know using the cassette not just as a medium of recording and distribution but also as a uh you know a kind of harbinger of, of interesting new performances as well right um so he i think you know in addition to doing all that he you know hand painted a lot of his own releases and really had this strong emphasis on um you know, doing everything that he could within his own means or, you know, outside of uh, actually manufacturing the recording medium, you know, which is something I bring up in the book. That's right, been very right. difficult to do up until the time now where we don't have to do that, where, you know, we can record onto MP3 or other digital formats. Right. But um, anyway, um, uh, Conrad was good friends with another friend of mine, uh, Ken Montgomery who is, you know, still active in New York and, uh, you know, another person who is, you know, definitely acted as a node within this network because he had um, a space in New York called Generator, which was a combination of a gallery and, uh, like, a boutique and a performance space all in one. And, uh, you know, as... Or, you know, maybe... What do I want to say here? Um, (laughs) As unsurprising as that may seem now, you know, where there are more things like that available. Right. um, Something like that was really essential in furthering this culture that was, again, you know, largely based on communication across vast spaces and correspondence. And to have some place like that where you could could indeed have a physical hub where people were coming in and, uh, you know, maybe even meeting each other for the first time right right after you know months or years of correspondence or something like that you know it wasn't merely a you know glorified bulletin board exchange you know (laughs) like uh, a in the netherlands was another one that was very similar uh one in um germany called gelb music i believe but um yeah i'm i'm I'm
1: tempted to well, uh, we'll we'll talk in a, in a little bit about how mm-hmm. uh, how much that that has changed and hasn't changed uh, sure. with with the use of uh, uh kind of uh, net labels and and labels continuing to use uh cassettes even the ones who are releasing uh music that's recorded digitally uh but mm-hmm. uh I have a, a kind of a few a few things I was very curious to hear you mention because they were again things that were kind of traced throughout they they weren't kind of headline topics within the book but mm-hmm. they they rear their head a few times <laughs> yeah. and uh one of them is the uh uh, uh, the uh, let's say uh, proliferation of varying political views <laughs> kind of <laughs> oh, yeah. that's, that's important, Definitely. right? appear in the appear in the scene. Uh, I'm thinking of like uh, like the uh, incident with Mark Solitrov, uh mm-hmm. and, and and a few other things. I wonder if you could touch on that. I, I, I imagine there are. Um, uh, some people who who might be familiar with uh, American experimentalism and uh, mm-hmm. and all of those things, they might be unaware of of that aspect of uh, kind of the yeah. underground tape network.
0: Oh yeah, yeah. Well, again, I mean, going going back to um, John Cage or something like that. If that is people's uh, introduction to experimental culture here, which it often is, you know, people normally associate that with uh, you know Zen or um, you know, as imparted by DT Suzuki or something like that. And, you know, just a generally more, uh, you know, for lack of a better word, benevolent lifestyle. And, you know, the thing is that when we're dealing with um, culture where people do not have any other circuit through which to distribute it, you are going to get stuff like that, but you're also going to get stuff that's extremely hostile or uh, misanthropic or... Um, you know, just, just provocative in such a way that really nobody wants to dare touch it, you know. And, and, you know, obviously even a record pressing plants aren't going to handle it. And, you know, thus we have to rely on things like uh, Xerox covers and, and uh, you know, music recorded directly onto cassette at home. So, um, you know, so from out of that, we get, as you said, a pretty broad spectrum of um you know spiritual views political views what have you and um the one you're mentioning in particular i think involved a guy by the name of mark solid or um i forget what he was calling himself back then uh may have even been going by a pseudonym um Mark Saunderson or something like that. Right, right. But um anyway, um had a record label which was named, I think, after the AWB or the uh um Afrikaner uh, separatist movement in South Africa and um you know, it was rife with fascist symbols and uh, you know, very um, you know, racially insensitive sort of uh Subject matter, and anyway, they they advertise in like the front page of a magazine called Electronic Cottage, uh, which was put out by a a guy named Hal McGee, who is fairly active still. And um, anyway, um, somebody had reviewed one of their um, records in that magazine in a positive light, and not necessarily agreeing with what they were saying, but simply saying they could agree how, um, you know, people in certain situations, you know, could end up adopting this kind of extreme mindset. You it, know? Was, it was and, Jeff Jarman, if I'm remembering correctly. Yes. Right. Yeah, that was him. Exactly. Um, so yeah, that started a kind of letters war and, right. uh, you know, what, what seemed like, uh, you know, what would have been just a, you know, footnote in the larger history of things just, you know, expanded and expanded as they do. right? And, um, <laughs> and it's still kind of valid as a, you know, instructional point today, I think where, um, oh, gosh, let me get a drink here really quick. Hold on a second.
1: <laughs> sure. Sure. Well, while you're, uh, but while you're drinking, not to interrupt you, but <laughs> to take the opportunity right, while you're drinking, sure. <laughs> uh, I, I, I found it uh, interesting the way that, uh, I, again, Al, Al is has kind of set up uh, pre-interview in the book, uh, mm-hmm. describing him as this kind of every man who is mm-hmm. just so kind of um, – Almost just possessed by the desire to keep dubbing tapes, and he so he he runs yeah. this label. It becomes eventually becomes another label. It sounds like uh, in the interview he talks about how it, that's been parlayed into other other lines of work, along with uh, larger record labels. But at the time, he was uh, working a day job, and mm-hmm. uh, he he owned his own uh, cassette dubbing equipment, and he was he was dubbing all the cassettes himself. So he was contacting people through the mail or people he had met, and often people who ended up being fairly well-known in the, uh, in the experimental world, uh, Jim O'Rourke, I think mm-hmm. one yeah. of them, um, was one. uh, but he, he's, he's kind of described as someone who's just, uh, I, I don't want to say I, a, a political, but it's certainly in his mm-hmm. uh, artistic practice that it's, it's much more focused on kind of the mm-hmm. consumption and production of sound. Um, oh yeah. And, and setting yeah. that, that kind of his uh, longevity up against, um, some of the more uh you know like getting sensitive uh, kind of uh content oh, yeah. of the other ones and, and uh, the yeah, lack of a very good point there.
0: too um, and i mean even for you know sonic extremity if that's the only criteria we're going by i mean there's there's competitions by like uh janice that are right. just mind-blowingly more intense than um you know <laughs> some of the Garden variety power electronics right. stuff <laughs> right. is out there, you know, and um, well, as you, you know, obviously he had more resources to deal with, but right. uh, still, you know, there's there's this drive there that is is uh, absent from even a lot of the stuff that's supposed to be the most extreme music ever recorded, and right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but um, having said that, yeah, yeah, I mean these these labels or uh, single artists that that kind of fixate on either representing a single genre or um or attitude i I find that within this culture they're not nearly as resilient as these people like al you know who Mm -hmm. um really you know again are obsessed with being documentarians and i think trying to get the most accurate portrait of uh you know human expression that they can and uh you know that takes them very far afield so
1: um that's, that seems consistent with the way that you've described, uh, the male artists and that they're not, yeah. uh, mm-hmm. you know, uh, dependent on a particular medium that they're, they're interested in, in, uh, I guess, a kind of sociability, right. That, uh, that, that, mm-hmm. that interaction, that exchange of, uh, kind of holding up a network is, is the most important thing, um, or mm-hmm. one, w- one way of describing a very important thing <laughs> rather than call it the most important thing. <laughs> mm-hmm. But, uh, since, since you've mentioned it, I'm, I'm, that, uh, uh, t- towards the end of the book, you talk about um, uh, net labels and uh, w- uh, one type of net label, uh, which is what you would mention the labels that kind of uh, specialize in uh, that particular type of potentially offensive content um, mm-hmm. and uh, often maybe spend more time focusing on coming up with titles than they do yeah. on, the, on the sounds themselves. <laughs> uh, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about net labels and what I, I think... Th- this this must seem even more bizarre to people who mm-hmm. aren't <laughs> kind of initiated into into that scene than like I, I think uh, I, I ran for several years a cassette tape label uh, and that mm-hmm. was difficult enough to explain to someone who wasn't involved but but yeah. it, it made sense once <laughs> they knew that I was going to the post office and selling things uh, mm-hmm. through through PayPal and all that but uh, a net label seems very I um, wonder
0: if you could offer a description of that. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a fairly recent phenomenon, so I I don't think... um, Well, I think people are beginning to catch on to it, but uh, it's it's amazing how little uh, space you see covered in, you know, even magazines like Wired or something like that. I I don't read that regularly, but I can't remember ever seeing anything in there about uh, net labels or a similar phenomenon. But anyway, yeah, I mean, as the... Broadband internet era really kicked in, you know, that allowed for the, you know, much quicker dissemination of things on, um, you know, immaterial music formats, whether it was MP3 or uh, FLAC or whatever other format people preferred, you know, what type of compression algorithm they liked. But um, yeah, after a while, um, I found it interesting, you know, before even. Or at least at the same time that stores like iTunes were a going concern, uh, that you had people who uh, you know were active previously with burning things onto CD recordables or onto mini disc or some other you know available format like that. You know they're um, maybe converting their catalogs over to MP3. Like there's one called Zero Moon, which I believe still does that. Mm. Um, so on one hand, there were entities where they were simply taking what they already had and making it into a digital archive of sorts. And, you know, people, you know, there are different methods of receiving it. Sometimes it was completely free or sometimes it was kind of a pay what you want sort of deal. Um, but gradually there have been more and more labels, propping up where uh, they don't even have to rely on that, uh, that back catalog, you know, stuff is solicited directly from, or uh, fresh work, you know, is solicited directly from artists. And, um, it's another one I could land upon here. Um,
1: well, there are, uh, it, it, it seems like in the in the book you descri- you describe uh, uh you you give the the ones i've already mentioned the uh the ones who are kind of engaged in almost uh, a form of trolling uh a little <laughs> bit <laughs> a little bit uh, mentioned yeah. t- towards the end of that part of the book but then <clears throat> prior to that uh you, you do talk about a few who do kind of um uh, maybe Zero Moon one, was one of these, who do mm-hmm. uh, a similar kind of engagement with technology where they're very interested in the limitations and the uh, the, the ways that the
0: oh, MP3 yes, yes. itself
1: works. Maybe you could mention, I don't yeah. remember the names of those. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, they're... Um, you might not either, I, I wouldn't. <laughs> again, yeah, it's it's been a long time since I even went, went back and uh, proofed that text. But yeah, I, the ones you're talking about in particular... Um, to specialize on uh releasing things that are on low bit rates uh you know stuff that's you can anybody can go into itunes or a similar program themselves and just say i want to convert an mp3 over to uh you know eight kbps or something like that and and strip a lot of the um sonic quality from it and uh I guess there are some people who realize that's a way to create interesting sonic artifacts all on its own. You know you have this very distinct kind of um melancholic tinny sound or something that comes from doing that, but also uh you know there's a lot of these labels that have been proliferating in um, you know places like the former Soviet Union where this, this broadband uh, internet has yet to arrive in, right. in full or, you know, to the same degree that it does over here. And uh, people who want to promote their work, um, you know, the only way they may have available to do that is through uh, getting through to people at net cafes or something like that who uh, the meter's ticking the second they walk in the door and and right you know they do not have two hours to right. <laughs> go right. download a single song <laughs> and um you know so that may be a way of getting around these limitations for people within these countries but again yeah it's 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 this combination of both the, an actual desirable aesthetic on one hand and uh contingency on another you know sometimes the two meet sometimes they don't but uh it's, it's uh, certainly an interesting thing, and you know, obviously, another thing that's kind of followed up from the the you know glitch music or kind of intentionally engineered uh, digital failures that uh, started becoming more of a going concern in the late '90s and you know early 20th century mm. through uh, record labels like like Mego or uh, Falch and so on. Mm. Right,
1: I, I, and I, now I'm remembering. I think the uh, the net label in particular that kind of stuck in my in my mind was the one that I believe it. The limitation was uh, had the same number of megabytes as the as the floppy disk, and that was the restriction.
0: Oh yes, right. yeah, right. And and I think some of these uh, things were actually released onto. Three and a half inch floppies again right for, and
1: I, I still have yeah. a uh, i've never been able to <laughs> i think i think something went wrong with it, but I actually have a release that was a friend of mine gave me that was released that way, and i was I, that's that dates me a little bit generationally how <laughs>
0: well, i I had
1: too yeah um uh, I'm I'm curious about if if you would be willing to talk a little bit about your own participation in the in the scene. Uh, that's again that's mentioned a little bit at the end. I believe mm-hmm. it was the uh, tapeworm label. Uh, and I was I, I, I was thinking about in the in that last maybe the second to last chapter, the, the one that talks about uh, kind of the resurgence of uh, cassette tape culture and mm-hmm. uh, in, mm-hmm. within experimental music. And uh, you had mentioned the tapeworm label, and I thought, oh, tapeworm. Mm-hmm. I have a release on tapeworm. And then I realized that, of course, there was more than one label called tapeworm.
0: (laughs) The one um, that's in that book is, uh, they make very careful to say that they're not an offshoot of it, but they're really closely related to the UK label Touch. Right. uh, Very seminal kind of sound arts label over there. And... uh, that's, I don't know, that's mainly because originally they drew on the same roster and everything. It, it wasn't really a, a, a matter of Touch being a parent label. But um, a lot of the same people were involved. And um, anyway, um, the whole thing with was, was things still being available on cassette now in the 21st century when uh, you know people have to go out and actually buy equipment and hunt it down on eBay or something... You know, in order to play these releases, um, you know, a, a lot of people will think that that's just completely contrarian and um, you know, just an, another means of uh, being more difficult or something like that. But uh, even within that criticism, you know, there's there's a bit of truth, but maybe uh, not not so uh, harsh and condemning as that, you know. Um, I think there's something to be said about people coming to uh, the artists themselves and not allowing themselves these conveniences of, uh, you know, for example, just skipping to the next song in a program or, uh, you know, as we have with MP3s now, just programming things in the order that they like when right. they have a listening... Uh, experience ahead of them. And, uh, you know, Cassette is kind of one of the more demanding media in that that manner that you have to just if you do attempt to skip ahead to something, you know, it's going to be kind of a trial and error process to get where you want to go. Um, and more so than, than CD or whatever, it kind of requires people to uh, buckle in for the duration as it were. And, uh, you know, that's one thing that actually did contribute to my Um, getting interested in it. I wasn't initially, but the sort of work I do is kind of a slow-burning sound that relies on fairly steady crescendos and and decrescendos, and um, it just seems to mesh well with the, I guess, the the slowness of that medium, you know, Hmm. where um, just watching these tape spools slowly churning away as you go, and uh, the overall... I think speed of uh, people's reception to the the, the music was congruous with actually putting it on cassette, you know. Um, And again, you know, a lot of other people have had motives similar to that or more involved with uh, just kind of a fetishization of it or a ironic appropriation of it, if, if you would. But um, yeah, again, right. everybody is seemingly different there.
1: What's that? Right, and uh, I mean that the you you described Conrad, I think I believe it was Conrad Schnitzler who uh-huh. uh, uh, was one one of the earlier uh, people to use cassette tapes in performance. Right, he was the one with the belt of cassette. Yeah. Right, mm-hmm. I mean the, the way that you're describing uh, kind of you know, post MP3 uh, cassette tape listening is is itself a kind of performance that has has these limitations mm-hmm. to it. It's it's kind of interesting the way it's. Uh, full full circle like that. And that was always my um, uh my motivation to be involved in it as well. That uh it didn't it didn't have the same kind of uh it it, it, it was it was nothing like iTunes. It was nothing like being able oh, to, yeah. to click through something on an i uh iPod. And- I, also, I, mean, I was I was unable to even tell how far along I was. I mean, some of these cassette tapes yeah. they're, they're spray painted over. I can't see how long the cassette is. It could
0: it could it could break you halfway had, through. Uh, yeah, your auto reverse <laughs> on or whatever. That right, was got. That right. Was, yeah. but, <laughs> but if I can actually cut in before I forget it, sure. uh, there was um, there's a release by uh, Daniel Menchi, the uh, Portland based sound artist in there where uh in order to even get to the cassette to begin with it was between these two sheets of metal uh that were bolted in such a way it required power tools to open it up right (laughs) right (laughs) so again you're you're being required to participate in um just this kind of performance in which you know commitment is is uh resurfaces as a value and um you know, if you know the the theme of the music is, is sort of uh, hard work or industriousness or something like that, it's I found it quite clever to uh, do something like that, where you actually is further dramatized by you having to labor away and <laughs> right <laughs> even getting to the recording to begin listening. Right. Um,
1: uh, but before we uh, uh, start to start to wind down, I did want to ask about. Uh, I, I can't remember his name. Uh, the 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 cyberpunk author, uh, mm-hmm. multimedia, or sorry, the the one who ended up uh, uh, recording a, a number of of CDRs. <laughs> I can't and I cannot remember his name. I'm sure you know who I'm talking
0: uh, about. Maybe uh, Kenji Shiratori. Who's, yes. Yeah.
1: Uh-huh. What if you could breathe? It's. It, I had never. I mean, so many of the. Uh, you know, I, I was familiar with Al Margolis and, and Merzbach, obviously, and, and many. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure many people who would be interested in reading the book would be familiar as well. And maybe they would be familiar with this particular artist, but I had never heard of him. And mm-hmm. It was very, uh, it was very interesting, uh, kind mm-hmm. of very interesting story.
0: <laughs> uh, yeah, Kenji's. I, I don't even know. Uh well, I, I still don't even know if he's actually human or right. you know, generated <laughs> experiment, even though people have claimed to see him like at uh, acoustic music festivals and this kind of thing where he's been booked. But um, he wrote a book, again, kind of a cyberpunk word salad sort of book called uh blood electric and supposedly it was acclaimed by david bowie and all these other people but the 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 press quotes are not really verified in any way right i don't (laughs) know that's that's a story all onto its own but anyway um he had this really kind of exasperated um style um in which, uh, you know, sentences were just kind of strung together that that didn't really have a lot of... um, Oh, gosh, what do I want to even say? You know, they didn't really seem to have subjects or anything like that. The objects were present, but subjects weren't there, and uh, it was all this very sort of techno-gnostic sort of uh, hallucinatory prose. And anyway, um, he decided he wanted to at some point do readings of this kind of stuff to musical backing and uh, solicited pretty much like every single person he could think (laughs) of, you know, I guess, within the, you know, the sound arts or post-industrial music underground to uh, collaborate with him. And um, a lot of people were quite flattered by this, you know, his his means of introducing himself to them. Was not just to send out uh you know, hi, would you like to collaborate in the email? But he would send a review of uh, something that he had heard of that artist right. in this sort of panicked, short circuiting style, you know, of his again. And so, anyway, out of this, you know, uh, managed to get a harvest of, of dozens and dozens of recordings. But, um, the catch there is not just the fact that he became as prolific as, you know, some of the other people in Japan, you know, like, uh, or somebody like that. But it was that, uh, suddenly people were realizing that, um, recordings they had sent in, you know, for collaboration were being used under different names or being attributed directly to him right. <laughs> or being put in this huge pool of, of raw data that he would, um, Misattribute or something like that, and uh, managed to get quite a few people angry, and right. um, you know, especially <laughs> when when and where royalties were actually involved. I don't know how many times that was the case, right, but right. Uh, right. you know, again, raised a very interesting question that I may still not have the answers to about um, uh, you know the role of communicating with complete strangers within these networks and of uh, you know, these occasional breaches of trust that you right. know, still do occur, even in a uh, very often utopian environment like this. Right. Yeah.
1: And I, I uh, reading that portion of the book, it and and knowing kind of the time period that that took place, if I'm if I'm correct mm-hmm. in assuming that, that it seemed almost like he was a that if he had existed earlier. It wouldn't have worked. Mm -hmm. It would have required for him to kind of pull that kind of thing. He would have had to have so much more uh, resources and time to actually send Mm -hmm. things through the mail. And in a way, it would be a a more impressive feat if he were to do that. (laughs) But
0: but, no, I mean, he has the excuse that he's just kind of making a comment upon the, you know, digital zeitgeist or whatever where, uh, you know, that he is raising questions about anonymity and um, viruses and so on, you know, and that kind of conversation, again, didn't exist originally right
1: and it, it it almost seems like it, it couldn't exist now uh, several mm-hmm. years later that it's 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 yeah. almost like it's played out or it's it's too easy i think so uh, to do something <laughs> right right <laughs> right <laughs> well i i am as we're kind of winding down i wonder if you could tell us a little bit about uh you know what you're working on now and what's mm-hmm. uh what's next
0: okay well um major thing i'm doing right now which uh, happily does have a publisher but just to respect their wishes i'm not going to say who it sure, is sure. Yet. <laughs> yeah because they um, i think they're planning a series of books and they don't want this to be fully public until that that's all right. um, set in stone but anyway um, i'm going to be doing a book that's about the cultural history of synesthesia um, Which, you know, if people aren't familiar with that, that's a process where one sensory input gives you two uh, simultaneous sensory outputs. You know, so if you hear a sound, you're going to um, translate that as uh, a color in your brain or something. And um, there's been, you know, quite a lengthy history of this over, you know, not just the past couple centuries of Western culture, but also in, um, you know, archaic history. And um, I'm, you know, very fascinated by, you know, not only the successes in this area, but the uh, very intriguing failures as well, you know, Mm. because it's very, very difficult to get a universal one-to-one correspondence between a sound and a vision or, uh, you know, even a sound and a smell or you know, any, any two combinations of sensory data. Mm. Um, so it's, uh, and also, you know, a very, very limited number of the overall human population are clinical synesthets. You know, there right. are people who can train themselves to make metaphorical connections, but the people who have um, the inability to turn that off at any time is very, very limited. Um, so we can't really speak about synesthetic art so much as about what we'd call cross-modal Art, you know, where, uh, you know, you're attempting to make an illusion of those connections, but it's it's, it's not always going to be a, a perfect match. But anyway, um, you know, that's something I've been working on uh, since you know at least the time I went over to Spain to do a paper on that, um, and and um, slowly building and am almost finished with it. And uh, you know, again, it should be released in 2014 or so. I also oh, have. A couple books out now or um forthcoming there's one in germany called uh, urban klangron uh or urban sound spaces um in which i'm talking about uh you know an attempt to make a kind of techno organic hybrid uh sound environment for you know the new mega cities that we're living in um there's that there's also a book that was um Curated by uh, Spigniew Karkowski, the uh, electronic composer. It's called Order is an Exception, and I have a piece in there. There's Mm -hmm. also um, uh, Curtis Rhodes, the uh, granular synthesis, um, I guess we could say proselytizer. Oh, right, right. You know, um, innovator. There'd be more. Right, right. <laughs> and nicer. Right. Yeah, that's what I originally meant to say, yeah. Um, he has a piece in that. There's a few other, um, you know, people from the sound arts community who have uh, sort of put this collection of, of text together, not just as a tribute to him, but as a, uh, you know, sort of furthering of his own ideas. So there's another few things where I have some input. And um, other than that, I am working on a series of recordings, uh, which is called Thank You for Your Interest. They're basically a limited edition of one made-to-order recordings in which oh, wow. I uh, have a, a hand-designed box, which contains the single copy of the commissioned recording and you know some other uh, digitally generated artworks. Hmm. And um I was just instituting that as a means of getting out of my rut and other right. <laughs> um, you know, what other modes of expression I can be uh forced into once people do set limitations upon me because that's not something I was very familiar with and um, you know, wanted to see if I could, you know, take the old style uh system of arts patronage and mm. you know Modernize that somehow, or, or make that something truly personal.
1: So. Right. Oh, very interesting. Well, I, yeah, I, sure. I i very much hope that when your your uh, your book on synesthesia comes out, that you'll talk to us at the New Books Network. <laughs> yeah, we love, yeah, to, love we'll to hear about it. Definitely love to do it. Great. Well, uh, thanks so much for joining us today. <laughs> yeah, thank you for having me. You've been listening to a conversation with Thomas Bay William Bailey about his new book, unofficial release, self released and handmade audio in post industrial society. I'm your host, Christopher Riggs, signing off.